From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we present a sampling of true stories about holidays from Angela Derekis Taylor, John Peelmeyer, and Jennifer Rawlings. One Sunday before Thanksgiving, Dad planned to bring me to a turkey shoot. Getting a bullseye meant winning a Thanksgiving turkey. I've never been fond of Independence Day. Maybe because it was the first day I ever got drunk. Independently. New Year's Eve. A time to sip champagne and sing Old Lang Syne. Unless, of course, you're a stand-up comic. Then New Year's Eve is just a work day. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Paul Hostovsky shares a personal meditation on writing. So I wake up with this line in my head. The Proust is in the pudding, fishtailing around on the surface of a dream. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Holidays are a time to celebrate cultural traditions and set work aside. A holiday offers a break in our routine, prompting a three-day weekend in the sun or a three-hour snow delay at the airport. Some holidays are lightweight and fun and make you think about watermelon and fireworks, while others can seem solemn or fraught, setting the stage for either a delicious meal or a family drama. The special holidays event we presented on stage at the Ossie Davis Theater featured a collection of true holiday stories spanning the range from sunburn to heartburn, and we've chosen three of those stories to present in today's show. Divorce can make holidays difficult for both parents and children, transforming what should be a special day into one of conflicts and compromises and control. Those were prominent features of Angela Derickus Taylor's Child in Holidays, and she shared one unforgettable episode with our audience with this story, The Turkey Shoot. I was five years old, and it was the start of the holiday season. My parents separated when I was four months old. I'd never spent a single holiday with both of my parents, and the visitation agreement allowed for Dad to have me every other Sunday. Who would get me on the holidays was left to my parents to work out on their own. One Sunday before Thanksgiving, Dad planned to bring me to a turkey shoot, an annual outing he attended in New Jersey with his sister, my Aunt Sophie, and her husband, Uncle Jim. Getting a bullseye meant winning a Thanksgiving turkey. She's too young, Mom said. This is an adult thing. She'll be fine, Dad said. Her Aunt Sophie will keep an eye on her. Last time you brought this kid back from Jersey, she had a broken arm and head lice. Mom yelled, why can't you just take her to the park and get her an ice cream? I was the only child at the event, roaming freely among preoccupied adults. Adults with rifles, shooting at targets. All I cared about was winning a turkey. I was sure I could do it. Daddy, can I shoot? No, you're too little. I begged him, please, let me shoot. I can do it. You're so mean. Let me shoot, please. I kept pestering 
until I, won, until I wore him down. Finally, Dad lifted me onto a stool so that we stood more or less at the same height. With my back nestled against his chest, we extended our arms together along the cold steel barrel of the rifle. Dad raised the rifle to take aim, helping wrap my teeny forefinger and thumb around the trigger before placing his fingers on top, the rest of his big, strong hand enveloping mine. My body tingled with anticipation. I knew we were going to win a turkey, and that would show Mommy how great Daddy was. Then maybe she'd let me go with him on Thanksgiving Day, and maybe she would stop saying all those mean things about him. Dad and I were cheek to cheek as he nudged my head aside to look through the viewfinder. Then he allowed me to look, and I squeezed one eye closed like I'd watched him do, staring hard at the bullseye in the center of the target. Ready to win a turkey, he asked. Yes, Daddy. I took a deep breath and held it as we squeezed the trigger. Boom! The blast of the shotgun caused a powerful kickback, and the gun stock nailed me right between the eyes. I screamed in shock and pain from a deep gash that flowed from the deep gash. The blood flowed down my face and into my mouth. People yelled that my dad was an idiot for letting me shoot. <laughs> and my Uncle Jim, who'd been a medic in the Korean War, took over triage. The butterfly's good for now, he said. She probably needs a stitch to avoid a nasty scar. Let's get her to the emergency room. Nah, Dad said. She'll be fine. But look at this. Dad held up the target paper, showing the hole my bullet made right at the very edge of a still intact bullseye. My best damn shot of the day, he said. I moved the ice pack away and raised my throbbing head, squinting through swelling eyelids at the paper target. Did we win the turkey, Daddy? No, the hump wouldn't give it to us, Dad replied, disgusted. He held my chin and studied my face, turning it from side to side. Hmm, your mother's gonna love this. <laughs> I'm sorry, Daddy, I blubbered, wiping the blood, tears, and snot with my sleeve. That year, I spent Thanksgiving with my mom. <laughs> Angela Derekis Taylor is a second-generation American of Greek and Italian descent raised in a restaurant family in New York City in the 1960s. She writes about food and family dysfunction, publishing in the Westchester Review, Breadcrumbs Online, and elsewhere. A featured storyteller at Read 650 Live events, she's also taken the stage at Moth Story Slams and a main stage event in New York City. The married mother of two grown sons, she's a fan of both yoga and boxing and lives on City Island. One long ago July 4th in Altoona, Pennsylvania, John Peelmeyer was in the care of his distracted father at a family reunion when he learned one of life's lessons about 10 years earlier than he should have. Here's John Peelmeyer reading his holiday story, The Intoxication of Independence. I've never been fond of Independence Day, maybe because it was the first day I ever got drunk. Independently, sickeningly drunk. I was seven. <laughs> Let me explain. My paternal grandfather was the meanest man in Altoona, Pennsylvania. That's how everyone described him. 
everyone. He beat his children, he cheated on his wife, he worked as little as possible, and every penny she earned, he spent on cars. He hated African Americans, Italian Americans, Polish Americans, Irish Americans, and probably dogs and babies, too. One of his eight children cursed him in his coffin. He was mean even after he was dead. When he was alive, he was often drunk. His children, as a consequence, pretty much avoided alcohol. My father drank one beer a week with his Saturday dinner, and he would occasionally pour a thimbleful into a craft cheese glass and allow me a sip. I loved it. One July 4th, shortly after receiving a plaster statue of the child Jesus for being the brightest and politest boy in first grade, I went with my father to a family reunion. My mother stayed home with my four-year-old sister. It was just me and daddy. He sat at a picnic table chatting with adult cousins I had no interest in. And being the good father he was, he allowed me to do whatever the hell I wanted. What I most wanted was sitting on ice in a big tub nearby. Being the bright, polite, award-winning boy that I was, I went to my father and asked, Daddy, can I have some beer? <laughs> sure, he said, and went back to his family chat. I took out a bottle, popped the cap, and drank. It was cool and effervescent and the perfect thirst quencher on a hot holiday afternoon. If they had allowed seven-year-old boys to serve as spokespersons for Pap's Blue Ribbon, <laughs> I would have been a star. That beer was so good. How good? So good, I just had to have another. About a quarter of the way through bottle number two, I noticed the world was moving in a remarkable way, a kind of, I don't know, tipping on its side. I'd seen comedian drunks on TV stumbling and slurring their words and recognizing these symptoms. I staggered to my father and announced brightly and politely, Daddy, I'm drunk. <laughs> he evinced paternal concern. Sure you are. Very funny. Go play. <laughs> I didn't. I just sat in the grass and stared at a Roman candle someone had lit. It was the most beautiful thing ever. It was a preview of heaven. Hell arrived when driving home post-picnic. We hit a rabbit crossing the road. I heard the thump and felt the bump and I burst into tears. Daddy, you killed it. It was going home to its wife and babies and you killed it. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and then I passed out. What happened next, I don't really remember, but I was later filled in by a trustworthy eyewitness, my mother. She and Daddy, having both grown up with acrimonious parents who fought in front of the children, always held their disagreements in our basement garage, away from us kids. Not this night. This night, with my sister asleep and me in a Pilsner coma, <laughs> my mother let my father know her exact feelings about his bringing home a drunken child right there in our front hallway. But it isn't the 4th of July fireworks in our home that I remember, or even the one of a kind, one of a, one and a half bottles of beer. It's the remarkable beauty of that Roman candle burning in the grass. The intoxication that comes from independence.
Award-winning writer John Pilmeyer began his career with the play and movie Agnes of God. Since then, he's had three more plays mounted on Broadway and 25 film, television movies, and miniseries produced. And his stage adaptation of The Exorcist premiered in the West End and is bound for Broadway. He's married to writer Irene O'Garden and makes his home in upstate New York. Just imagine for a moment that you're a stand-up comic like Jennifer Rawlings, who has performed at hundreds of military shows around the world. Jennifer has risked exhaustion, dysentery, even incoming enemy fire. But at least she was guaranteed to be paid for her efforts, which was not something she was so sure of when she discovered the promoter who hired her to work a New Year's Eve gig in a remote 20,000-seat arena was, shall we say, a bit shady. Here's Jennifer remembering that night on and off the stage with an Alaskan old Lang Syne. New Year's Eve, a time to sip champagne and sing old Lang Syne. Unless, of course, you're a stand-up comic. Then New Year's Eve is just a work day. Let me tell you about New Year's Eve in Alaska. Have you ever been to Alaska? It's north of Oregon, north of Washington, and north of my favorite part of the United States, Canada. <laughs> Alaska has a lot more men than women. It's all guns, moose, and drinking. Alaska is basically a bar that was given statehood. <laughs> the first time I worked in Alaska, I was a young comedian, and it was a 700-seat venue. There were three acts on the bill. I was the middle act, following a dance troupe that opened the show. I showed up early and eager, notes in hand, wearing a black blazer, jeans, not too much cleavage, closed toe shoes. The opening act, a dance troupe, showed up with stilettos, sequins, feathers, garters, and thongs. <laughs> I would be doing my, hi, I'm from Kansas, clean comedy act, right after the dance troupe called the Bush Company, <laughs> they were strippers. The next time I performed in Alaska on New Year's Eve, it was a 20,000 seat arena. I was touring with this country band, Lone Star. Baby, I'm amazed by you. Okay. Anyways, this was a big deal. Playing an arena um, on New Year's Eve, even for a comedian, is a nice payday. But I'd heard that the promoter of this show was a real weasel, and I was worried about getting paid. My agent said, oh, don't fret. Your money will be at Soundcheck. Soundcheck came. Soundcheck went. No check. I was stressing. I have five kids that like to eat. I needed this money. I tried to call my agent, then my manager. But it was New Year's Eve, and my calls were going straight to voicemail. Desperate, I called Lone Star's road manager to see if they got paid. They did. No problem, he said. I'll make sure your check is in your dressing room when you get to the venue tonight. I got there. No check. I saw the promoter and asked him. Would you believe it, he replied. I gave the last check to Lone Star. The cash box didn't show up. Blah, blah, blah. I promise I'll FedEx your check on Monday. Now, I'd been contracted to perform for 45 minutes of stand-up before Lone Star came on. And if I didn't go on stage, I wasn't going to get paid. 
And I knew that this guy was going to use any excuse to not pay me. And so I had to hold up every single part of our agreement. 45 minutes, not 44, not 46. And on stage that night, it was brutal. The sound mix got changed from the sound check. And of the 20,000 people, only the people on the floor could hear me. I saw people passed out, throwing up, and I heard a heckler scream, take it off, lady. I wondered if it was a stripper from the Bush Company. <laughs> Finally, my time of hell came to an end. It was 11.45 p.m. on New Year's Eve. I walk off stage. The crowd is screaming for Lone Star. I am sweating, but I hadn't breached my contract. In the wings, the band members and the promoter are given high fives. Then Richie, the lead singer of the, the band, looks directly at me. There's stomping feet, the roar of the crowd. He screams the question, have you been paid yet? <laughs> no. Well, Richie said to the promoter, we're not going on stage until Jennifer has been paid. 11.48, I'm out of checks. The cash box isn't here. 11.49, the rafters are shaking as 20,000 people stomp and scream, Lone Star, Lone Star. At 11.50, the promoter runs to his office and returns with a bag of money. Are you sure you can carry all this cash, little lady? <laughs> oh, cash is fine, I tell him. I stuff it in my bra. And at midnight, as Lone Star is singing Old Lang Syme, I am swaying backstage with crisp $100 bills <laughs> safely tucked into my bra. I learned this from the strippers at the Bush Company. <laughs> Jennifer Rawlings is an award-winning writer, performer, and filmmaker who's appeared on Comedy Central, PBS, VH1, A&E, CNN, and in two popular TEDx talks. Her solo show, I Only Smoke in War Zones, tours globally. And her directorial debut, Forgotten Voices, Women in Bosnia, screens at film festivals and universities worldwide. Jennifer's the proud mother of five who's written for television, books, film, and for several publications, including the New York Times. If you're in the podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Read 650 website and want to get each episode of the show delivered to you, download any podcast app, then search for Read 650 and follow the show. We release new episodes on Writer Wednesdays, and I would love for you to hear all of them. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati Mayer. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show is produced with expert assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. Coming up right after the break, it's Paul Hostovsky with Between the Lines. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. For writers, ideas and inspiration can come in many forms. 
including in a random or clever phrase that seems to simply bubble up unbidden from the unconscious. Writer Paul Hostovsky received just such a prompt, and today he offers a rare glimpse into his creative process and the inner workings of his brain. Here's Paul reading, The Proust is in the Pudding. So I wake up with this line in my head, the Proust is in the pudding, fishtailing around on the surface of a dream. And I grab it, I just take it, and I run with it downstairs to the computer, where I enter another kind of dream state, where I'm trying to follow the thread of the line into the poem. And I'm holding on to the line for dear life, like it's a bungee cord, and I'm bungee jumping through the poem, boing, boing, looking around for the thread, which is in here here somewhere. I know it is. I trust it is. It's like you have to trust the line and you have to trust the thread not to break when the line breaks into another line and another and another the way the line must, the way the dream breaks into day, like daybreak, like breakfast, like broken egg yolks. Okay, maybe not like broken egg yolks. Maybe the egg yolks are a little forced. Maybe I'll take them out later. And maybe I'll just put them back in again because I like my egg yolks broken. And also because sometimes you can do that in a good poem, especially if you're trusting in something bigger than yourself, something bigger than egg yolks, bigger than Proust and Madeleines and all the lost time in the world. Because if you trust in the line, then you're holding on to the line for dear life like a pull cord on a parachute. It's like you're parachuting down through the poem, but at the same time you're floating up. You can only do this in poetry. Up in the great hot air balloon of the poem, standing inside the little wicker basket with a few passengers, a few good readers, and Marcel Proust with his own wicker picnic basket full of madeleines, which is actually your source of heat, your open flame, pushing the envelope upward and powering the buoyant, antique, iridescent technology of the poem. Paul Hostovsky is the author of 12 books of poetry, most recently, mostly, from Future Cycle Press. His poems have won many awards, including a Pushcart Prize and two Best of the Net awards. He's been featured on Poetry Daily, Verse Daily, and The Writer's Almanac, among others, and he makes his living in Boston as a sign language interpreter and braille instructor. His book, Deaf and Blind, is a collection of poems and stories about his life among the deaf and deafblind. Do you have some thoughts about writing or about your writing life? We'd love to hear them. Check out the submission section on our website or how to share your Between the Lines story. And while you're there, check out our other open submission calls for upcoming shows. Visit read650.org. Read 650 is a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers. We're a team of volunteers passionate about what we do, and we're so grateful for the help you provide that makes this all possible. Your tax-deductible donation is an investment in our mission, and your thoughtfulness and generosity makes all the difference in the world. Please visit read650.org slash donate and consider a gift to help fund the shows you enjoy. We do it all for you, and we can't do it without you.
That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers Angela Durekis-Taylor, John Peelmeyer, Jennifer Rawlings, and Paul Hostowski. For more Read 650, join our emailing list or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.